Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in God's holy word this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as we continue working our way through this wisdom book written by Solomon the king who had wisdom unlike any other that was before him or that was after him as we just read. So Solomon wrote uh, the majority of the Proverbs that we have inscripturated for us. He wrote uh, Ecclesiastes as well as the Song of Solomon. This morning we come to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. The Lord God says to you and me, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Let us pray. Lord our God, We ask that you would open our eyes through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit, that we may see and hear and comprehend what you have to say to us this morning, and that through your word you would encourage us and exhort us and comfort us and rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. And in all of this, Lord, we ask that you would help us to take our eyes and our mind off the things of this world and to be focused on the things of heaven where you live and reign forever. Help us to be heavenly minded and seek first after your kingdom. Through Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. It's well documented that even though we have the means of the internet and social media to stay in touch with people and the goings on of this world, that people are lonelier and more isolated than ever before. One recent study says about 50% of Americans do not have at least one weekly interaction with their neighbors. In our own neighborhood, I, I rarely see children outside playing in the streets, in their yards, riding their bikes, interacting with other kids in the neighborhood. It's a rarity. The AARP surveyed and found that about one-third of people over the age of 45 are lonely. Some have even tried to argue that loneliness can lead to premature death. 
Oswald Sanders writes, quote, the millionaire is usually a lonely man and the comedian is often more unhappy than his audience. It's a lonely world out there. People are more lonely than ever. And several conditions or areas of our life can contribute to loneliness. And this morning we're going to look at three of those from our text. First, in verses 1 through 3, we see the loneliness of being oppressed. The loneliness of being oppressed. Now, I've got to be careful because oppression is a loaded word in our society today. So we need to be sure that we define it properly according to what God's word says and how God's word defines it rather than how the world defines it and uses it. One Bible dictionary defines the term oppression from scripture like this, quote, the unfair or cruel treatment of individuals or nations which prevents them from having the same opportunities, freedom, and rights as others, end quote. I would define it like this. The sinful use of power to exploit others for selfish gain. I'll say that again. The sinful use of power to exploit others for selfish gain. Now, power is not inherently sinful. Otherwise, God would be inherently sinful because he is all-powerful. Power in and of itself is neutral, and it can be used either for good or for evil. We just saw this past Wednesday night how, how Jeanne de Albrecht, the, the queen of a small kingdom between France and Spain, uh, used her power as a queen to protect and promote the Reformation in her kingdom. That's a good use of power. To, to protect and promote the true and pure gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ against a works-based system that the, that the Catholic Church had developed over time, full of penance and sacraments. But power can also be used sinfully and in every sphere of our lives. Today the world talks about power primarily regarding politics or economics and race, but oppressive use of power is not just relegated to those spheres. It can happen on a national level, as we see in the book of Exodus, when the nation of Egypt, the kingdom of Egypt, was oppressing the Israelites and keeping them in slavery and bondage. Look at Russia and Ukraine and what's going on today. It can happen on a familial level. Laban oppressed Jacob according to Genesis 31, and defrauded him of his rightful payments. And Sarah oppressed her, her handmaiden, Hagar, according to Genesis 16. Spousal abuse is oppression. Child abuse is oppression. Abortion is oppression. Communism is oppression. Governments can oppress their citizens. Look at North Korea. Dare I say, look at what was going on in Canada recently. Employers can impress, oppress employees. Businesses can oppress customers. I read an article recently about 20 stores that were fined uh, for overcharging their customers. What was listed on the aisle did not match what was listed when the product was rung up at the register. And if that is done intentionally, that's a deceptive practice and an abuse of power. Bullies can oppress others in middle school and high school. 
There's even abuse of power and oppression inside the church, unfortunately. Covering up of sexual immorality, covering up abuse cases, covering up embezzlement. In Scripture, we see common groups are frequently singled out as being particularly subject to oppression. It's the weak, the poor, widows, orphans, the foreigner, and servants. All of these people are in a position where they can potentially be taken advantage of by those who are in authority or power over them. How many elderly people have been conned out of their savings by flashy, sophisticated scammers and con artists? That's oppression. How many people have been sold what was known to be a lemon of a vehicle by a sleazy used car salesman? That's oppression. That's taking advantage of others and abusing the power that you have. So Solomon looks around under the sun. Remember, under the sun is that viewpoint of I'm not bringing God into the picture. He looks around under the sun. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. All the oppression in every sphere of life. And he sees the effect that it has on those who are oppressed. Behold, he says in verse 1, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. They're crying tears, these oppressed people, and whatever manner they are being oppressed. They're, they're full of sorrow because of their plight at the hands of others. They're being sinned against. They've been used, abused, and mistreated, and there's nobody to comfort them under the sun. And Solomon says this twice to emphasize the loneliness that comes from being oppressed. There was nobody to comfort them. And he's not talking about, when he says comfort, he's not talking about just somebody coming around and, and patting them on the shoulder and saying something tried and cliche like, oh, it's going to be okay, you'll be fine. That's not comfort. The word comfort here means to, to actively help somebody and to assist them in dealing with their state of oppression. You can, you can help them by, by restoring to them what has been taken from them. Or you can help them by resisting the one who is oppressing them. But Solomon, under the sun, says there's nobody on the side of the oppressed. It's a lonely state of being. So Solomon gives a very depressing conclusion to his observation. And this is the logical conclusion when God is not accounted for in somebody's worldview. When God is not brought into the picture. Verses 2 and 3. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. The dead are better than the living because they're no longer able to suffer from oppression. They've been relieved of the possibility of suffering from the hands of their oppressors. But there's an even better state under the sun. Verse 3, better than both the living and the dead is the one who has not been born yet and has not even seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. person who has not been born has never seen the abuse of power, has never seen the oppression that comes from living in this fallen world that has fallen because of 
the sin and the death that gained entrance into this world through the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And with the increase of knowledge about global states of affairs that we have today with with the internet and, and worldwide media, has come an increase of knowledge about all the oppressions that happen under the sun. You have television commercials showing the plight of starving children in Africa because of warlords and militant Islam. You have international wars and threats of wars. Turn on the news, news, read the newspaper, search the internet, and you can find more and more oppressions and abuse of power to read about. And without God, the natural conclusion is to become depressed. Is this all that there is to life? Is it just one big cycle of conflict and oppression and abuse of power? Is it any wonder that some people deal with it apart from God by committing suicide or or turning to drugs or or alcohol to to deal with the pain? Or some people just ignore it. You know, I I don't want to think about all the bad things that are going on in the world around me. I'm just going to enjoy my life and have fun and live it up. Dr. Richard Belcher from RTS Charlotte concludes, quote, There is no hope of justice after death held out to the oppressed. Thus, to face oppression without the help of a companion is unbearable. Now, that's under the sun. That's without God in the picture. But when we turn to God's word and bring in an above-the-sun perspective, the Lord restores our hope. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Later, Psalm 167, verse 7. The Lord executes justice for the oppressed who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Throughout scripture, we see God opposed to those who abuse their power to oppress others. He is the one who put those people in their positions of power and they have sinfully used that position that God has given to them in his sovereignty. And so he sides against them. He is the one who hears the cries of the oppressed, sustains the oppressed, and delivers them. And throughout scripture, what we see is is that the wicked, the unbelievers, the unrighteous, are frequently, if not all the time, associated with oppression, where it's the righteous, God's people, who are the oppressed. So God sides with those whom he has called to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. He shows mercy to his people. He invites us, the oppressed, To call out to the Lord in Psalm chapter 10 because he hears their cries. With an above the sun perspective, when when you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you have that Christian worldview that God gives you, that outlook on life, that contrast with the unbelieving worldview of under the sun, you realize that you're really not alone in Christ Jesus. You suffer for his name's sake and you lose your job. An unbeliever panics. 
A believer prays to the Lord and trusts in him. You suffer for Christ so that you are imprisoned. An unbeliever throws a pity party or is full of fear. A believer sings songs to the Lord like Paul did. The Lord was with Joseph when he was oppressed by being sold into slavery by his own brothers. The Lord was with Joseph when he was wrongly imprisoned because of a lie from his master's wife. The Lord was with Paul when he was beaten, when he was arrested, when he was stoned, when he was shipwrecked. All that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ was with Paul. He has been with his people throughout the ages and he continues to be with you and me today. I will never leave you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those are the words of Jesus Christ, the faithful and the true, the amen. Christ is that companion who sticks closer to you than a brother. Christ is not a fair-weather friend who is there in the good but abandons you in the bad. Christ is there with you when you're being oppressed and persecuted and mistreated for being a Christian. No matter how many times you may sinfully be taken advantage of, Christ is there with you. For you and me as believers, we do have somebody who comforts us. We do have somebody who hears our tears and hears our cries. And it's the sovereign ruler of the universe who has all power to make things right and to correct abuses. If not in this life now, then definitely in the life to come. At that great and final day of the Lord. That blessed life where we will enjoy a world and a life free from all oppression. Free from all sin. And so from an above the sun perspective, it's better to be dead than to be alive. As Paul says, to, to be dead is to be in the presence of the Lord. It's to be with Christ because our, our soul is with the Lord and our bodies are resting. There is an element of truth that our bodies are resting at death. And so we are freed from experiencing oppression. But it's not the loneliness of the under the sun perspective. It's, it's knowing that our souls immediately enter into the presence of Jesus Christ. But it will be even better on the day of resurrection. When both body and soul will be with the Lord forever and ever. Oppression leads to despair for those who live without the Lord God of Scripture, who live without faith in Jesus Christ. But for us who believe, oppression is to, to bring us to Christ, to lead us to the comfort and the consolation and the justice of Almighty God and the recognition that Christ dwells with his people so that we are not alone. Because God is on our side, or rather because God has made us on his side, we are to look to Christ when we ourselves are being oppressed. In whatever way that may, whatever form or manner that may come. But on the flip side, because God is merciful and near 
to those his, who call, he calls his own, we are to also show mercy and be near to those who are suffering. Use your positions of power and authority to love and care for those under you rather than oppress them. This is the fifth commandment as understood by the Westminster Larger Catechism. What is the duty of superiors to inferiors? To love them and to care for them. Matthew Henry, great Puritan, writes this, quote, Wise men will consider oppressions and contrive to do something for the relief of those that are oppressed. Do you see somebody at work or school being bullied? Stand up for them or befriend them so that they know that they are not alone. Being bullied is, is a horrific experience, and it, and it alienates the person who's being bullied. And, and we see, we've seen over the past decades how those who live from under the sun respond to such bullying, and frequently it involves using guns to solve their problems. Because they're alone, and they're isolated, and it fills them with despair and anger because they're living apart. From God. Stand up for them or befriend them. Treat your spouse and children with love and care rather than being harsh and abusive towards them. Is there abuse or oppression going on in the, within your city, within your neighborhood, or within your county? You can vote them out if you believe that they are misusing their position of power. Or you can appeal to the, to the next higher level of government or you can at least make others aware of what's going on. There are plenty of opportunities near to us where oppression is happening. You don't have to go halfway around the world to find oppression. It's happening here in our backyard. And so Jesus, who is not afraid to be with and eat with sinners, who is not ashamed to turn you and me from a sinner into a saint, from a rebellious one to a righteous one, calls us not to be ashamed to be near and show mercy to those who can easily be taken advantage of. This leads us to verses 4 through 6 where we see the loneliness of envy. The loneliness of envy. We've seen the loneliness of oppression, the loneliness of envy. Solomon looks at work and using hyperbole says that a lot of our business and busyness that happens in this world, at least from under the sun comes from being envious of others. Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is Solomon's ancient way of expressing that phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. You know what I mean by that, don't you? That, that, that never-ending cycle of seeing somebody who has something bigger and better and newer than you and you've got to have it. I want that. Under the sun, man wants to be better than and to have more than his neighbor. And so he keeps on working and he works harder to gain an advantage over his neighbor. But under the sun, his neighbor has the same worldview and outlook. And so his neighbor is doing the same cycle. They're each trying to work harder and outgain one another. And Solomon calls this vanity, it's hebel, it's empty, it's meaningless. It will not provide you the ultimate satisfaction or meaning and purpose to your life. Striving after the wind, just like you can capture 
and grasps smoke in your hand, so is envying your neighbor and always trying to keep up with the Joneses. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says that envy makes the bones rot. Scottish pastor James Phillips says, Envy is of its very nature something unsatisfiable. You will always find somebody better off than you are. And even if you could reach the top and could not rise any higher, you will still envy. For you would envy those who still had something to strive for. End quote. To that, I would add that even if you were able to reach the top, you could never relax because somebody else is eventually going to outgain you. And so you've got to keep on. Even at the top, you can't rest and relax. You can't enjoy the, the labors of your hands that Solomon has talked about. This is God's portion to us in this life, to enjoy and to rest and to worship and to have family, to work. These are the, the five things that God gives to us. But the workaholic has no margin in his life for anything other than work because he's envious of others. And so this is a lonely business, working so hard to achieve that you can't even enjoy it. Only to have someone else who will come along and outdo you in work and possessions. And so the temptation, verse 5, is to say, well, if I can't win in this never-ending rat race of possessions and keeping up with the Joneses, then I'm just going to go to the other extreme and stop working altogether. The fool folds his hands. That's a symbol of, of not working at all, not being industrious. And he eats his own flesh. This, too, is a lonely business. Nobody wants to hire a sluggard, a lazy person. An employer does not value somebody who's not willing to work. We've seen this around us recently, have we not? There were job openings all over the place, but nobody's wanting to work. I, never in my 42 years of life have I ever seen fast food restaurants offer a signing bonus for you to come and work for them. That's the things of sports contracts, not McDonald's. But that's how desperate businesses were and are. There's nobody willing to work. The fool folds his hands, and it leads to his own destruction, eats his own flesh. He has no way to provide for his family. He can take no enjoyment in his toil, which Solomon has said is God's gift to us to enjoy. He doesn't do anything. So what is Solomon's conclusion to these two extremes? The loneliness of envy and the loneliness of laziness. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness then two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. You can avoid the loneliness of envy and the loneliness of laziness by working hard, but not to the extreme. Leave some margin in your life for rest, for worship, for enjoyment of your hard work, for taking care of your family and spending time with them. What verse 6 is saying is that it's better to have peace and contentment with your work, one handful of quietness, 
than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. It's better to have peace and contentment with what you're able to get done than to keep up with the Joneses by being a workaholic who has no peace or contentment. The sluggard has no peace or contentment because he must worry about his basic needs. How am I going to take care of myself? Well, I might resort to a life of crime. Or I may just slowly waste away in my mother's basement playing video games. William Still, Scottish pastor, asks us, quote, Are you content in your human situation, Christian? Are you content? Can you sit down and relax and rest your heart and your mind and say, Thus am I as God doubtless would have me now? It is enough. I am well content, for I am in his hand. End quote. Parents, don't try to keep up with other parents. Don't look to what other parents are doing and say, well, I can never measure up to that level of success. I can never keep up with that standard. Don't, don't measure yourself by others. But that doesn't mean you should stop parenting, right? Parent with contentment. Learn contentment with what you are able to do in your parenting. Workers, don't try to keep up with other workers, but don't stop working. Don't compare yourself to the standards of others. Mothers, don't try to keep up with other mothers. But that doesn't mean you stop being a mother. The standard for our lives is not other people. The standard for our lives is what God has called us to in our vocations in Jesus Christ, in our families in Jesus Christ, in every area of our life, our hobbies, our enjoyments, our relaxations, and we are called to contentment with that. You are good at one thing but not another. Be content with what God has made you good at. Instead of saying, well, I wish God had made me good at something else like this other person that I'm seeing over here. If our lives are like scales, we are called to seek balance. Not too much enjoyment because then you can get bored or lazy. Not too much work because then you can't enjoy your work. Find the balance of, of what God has given you in this life to enjoy. Worship, family, work, rest, and enjoyment. That is God's gift to us. Because God is the giver of work and all that we have, we are called to contentment. And we must fight to find that balance between working too hard and not working hard enough. So that's the loneliness of envy, the loneliness of oppression, verses 7 and 8. Finally, we come to the loneliness of dissatisfaction. Solomon looks again under the sun, a perspective that does not have God in the equation. And he sees this person, verse 8. There is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. The pursuit of riches is his all-consuming focus to the point that he never pauses for critical reflection on his life and his circumstances. He never questions, verse 8, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Verse 8 says he has neither son nor brother. He's alone in this world, and he's working so hard to gain all that the world can offer to him. 
but he has nobody to give it to, nobody to share it with, nobody to enjoy it with, but he's so consumed with it, he never stops to ask, why am I doing all of this? Riches are a poor substitute for friends and family. Riches will never satisfy. They just feed the loneliness that comes with dissatisfaction. What Solomon is describing here is Ebenezer Scrooge. Passionately pursued riches and pinched every penny, but it did not bring him any satisfaction. It didn't fill the void in his loneliness. Dr. Benjamin Shaw, who teaches at a seminary down in Greenville, in his commentary tells of a survey that was carried out years ago asking people how much they made currently and how much they would need to make, how much more, to be comfortable. In every income group, from the, from the poorest to the richest, the answer, how much more do you need to be comfortable, was around 25% more. 25% more. Understandably, 25% more would greatly help those who struggle to make ends meet. Perhaps it would allow them to quit that second job so they can be with their, their family more. But the rich also wanted 25% more. They were not satisfied. What the poor might see as luxuries, the rich saw as necessities. And isn't it interesting how the luxuries of today become the necessities of tomorrow? I can remember growing up and living in a time when we didn't have cell phones. A landline was sufficient, but you need a cell phone now. You didn't need the internet. You didn't need internet access at your home, but that's a necessity now. The luxuries of yesterday are the necessities of today. The luxuries of today will become the necessities of tomorrow. The pursuit of mammon is all-consuming, and so people never stop to ask themselves, why am I doing this? And they're certainly not doing it to the glory of God. They're not working to the glory of God. They're not enjoying to the glory of God, relaxing to the glory of God, worshiping to the glory of God, taking care of their family to the glory of God. The pursuit of wealth is an empty pursuit. It's hebel, it's vanity. It leaves you dissatisfied and lonely. So let me ask you, where are you at this point in your life? Where are you? Are you the workaholic caught in the rat race of keeping up with others? Are you the lazy person whose laziness will lead to self-destruction? Are you the dissatisfied person who never stops to reflect on and examine his or her life? Or are you the content person who strives to balance work with enjoyment and all that God has given to you? Three of these types of people are lonely. One is not. So let me encourage you to pause. Take stock of your life and the motivation. Why am I doing these things? And listen to and learn from the wisdom of God. Christian, what is weighing you down and assaulting your mind and your heart? What is, what is testing and trying your faith? You know, we have three great enemies in this, in this life. Satan, the world, and our own sinful flesh. And they try to oppress us. So what's oppressing you right now? What's weighing you down? 
What's causing you to look at the world around you and your circumstances rather than to look to God seated upon his throne? I tell you, look to Christ. You are not alone. Satan wants to isolate you. He wants to keep you from the body of Christ. He wants to keep you from corporate worship. The world, sinful flesh, will find any excuse why you can't come to church. Why you can't be with the people of God and worship him in the throng of his saints. Satan wants to isolate you. God calls you to a spiritual family. Christian, do you see oppression around you in, the, in your family and on the work, work site? Act like Christ and be near to those who are being oppressed. Demonstrate the love of Christ who has loved you and given himself up for you. It is possible to avoid some of the loneliness in this life by being content with what you have. That's the 10th commandment. Being near and merciful to those who need help or are being oppressed. Loving your neighbor as yourself, which is the summary of the second table of the law. And looking to Christ when you experience oppression yourself. Contentment, showing mercy, and turning to the always near Christ. These three things are part of the above-the-sun life and perspective that we are called to pursue by the Lord God who is always near those who by faith are in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.